This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Okay, so let's get started. A few more folks may trickle in. Um, yes, but I think she may have already got Did you pass it out already? No, I didn't know. Oh. Yeah, if you could pass that out, Jean, that'd be great. Um, everyone should have um, the following handouts. You should have a worksheet preliminary to writing a personal rule of life. Okay, you should have family prayer. This begins with concerning the service, three pages front and back. Front and back. Uh, and then you should have, what's the other thing I gave you? Yeah, you should have the uh, right of reconciliation of a, pen, of a penitent. Yeah? Okay. Yes. It's, it's, it's the sacrament of confession. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, can I have one of those? I give them all away. Okay, so this is, um, this is week four of the Understanding Anglicanism class. And uh, tonight we're actually going to be talking about um, Anglican spirituality. So uh, Tish and I kind of have different parts in this class. Uh, she's going to be talking about some of the themes that have arisen from her book, uh, Spirituality in the Ordinary. And I'm going to be talking about some very specific Anglican spiritual practices. Uh, rule of life. You've got them on that sheet of paper there. Rule of life. Um, what else did I say? Yes, praying the hours, the Jesus prayer, um, sacramental confession, and Lectio Divina. Those, are, those would be the five that I'm going to talk about tonight. So um, we're also going to actually practice a couple of these uh, spiritual disciplines tonight. The first thing we're going to do, I was going to have us do evening prayer, um, but Tish reminded me that it's very unlikely that you'll do evening prayer by yourself because uh, they're actually, you know, it's a little complex. So uh, she thought it would be better for us to try family prayer together. And I think that's actually a really good idea. So I, I went up and printed off the right for, um, for family prayer. Um, so that's what we're going to do. So if you're looking at that sheet of paper, that's what we're going to begin with tonight. Uh, it says concerning the service at the top. And you want to flip to page five. So I'm going to explain this real quick. Um, in the Book of Common Prayer, and right now what we have is a virtual Book of Common Prayer uh, in the ACNA. Um, we're in the process of transitioning away from the 1979 Book of Common Prayer of the Episcopal Church to the ACNA's Book of Common Prayer, which will come out in 2019. Uh, and so there's pieces of it that are completed and other pieces that are not. So it's all, all the things that are completed are up online. I think the only thing remaining still is the Psalter, but I could be wrong about that. Um, <clears throat> but um, on the website, there are, there's a section called Text for Common Prayer. And in that section, which will ultimately be the daily office, which is what you can find in any Book of Common Prayer. It's the first section of the Book of Common Prayer. These are the, the offices that we pray every day, morning and evening. Um, so they, these are basically set prayers uh, along with scripture readings that uh, the Anglican Church commends to your practice. Um, the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, which is the normative prayer book for all Anglicanism you know, from, from that point forward, uh, says that all priests and deacons are to say morning and evening prayer either privately or publicly. So this is a requirement for all priests, actually, and all clergy. Um, and it's not required for all the laity, but it's recommended. Um, and, and essentially what the daily offices do is they bring corporate worship from Sunday into your daily prayer life. Uh, and it grounds and structures your daily prayer life around 
these two offices. And again, these offices are composed of, of prayers either drawn from Scripture or from the, the ancient church. Um, and you know, we'll, see, we'll see that tonight. There's a prayer in evening prayer, uh, including in the family prayer, shortening of it, that is called the Fos Hilaron, the O Gracious Light. And it's a prayer that goes all the way back to the 4th century. We see it in Basil the Great, the Cappadocian father in the 4th century. So uh, we have these ancient prayers. We have prayers drawn from Scripture. And then Scripture readings uh, that, uh, that compose the daily office. Um, now, alongside of the longer daily offices, right, the morning and evening prayer offices, there are these shortened versions of them. They're, it's sort of like compacted or compressed versions of, of uh, morning and evening prayer that, are, that can be used in a family context or by individuals. Uh, in fact, the Episcopal Church used to call it uh, daily devotions for families and individuals or something like that, individuals and families, one of those two. Uh, the, this, in the ACNA Book of Common Prayer, it's just called family prayer. Uh, but same, same idea, uh, which is that these are, uh, these are shorter versions of the daily office that you can kind of do on your own. Um, and they're, they're a little easier to fit into a daily, daily pattern. So that's why we're doing um, the family prayer for early evening um, in, this, in this context. So if you turn to page five, four. you've got, uh, is it four? Oh, in the early evening, you're right. I was looking at the close of the day. So you've got one for, um, for morning, you've got one for at midday, uh, and then there's one at the close of the day, and then one at, uh, at, the, at the, um, the close of the evening, the close of the day. So this is, this is sort of a shortened version of Compline, actually, the, at the close of the day, if you know that service. If you don't, we'll talk about it in a little bit, so you'll learn what it is. Um, so what we'll, what we'll do, because um, we don't have the Psalter readily available and the same translation for everybody, we're just going to go with the psalm that is appointed. Um, is there a psalm appointed? Yeah, it is. Uh, we'll go with the psalm that's appointed in the family prayer, and then we'll substitute the reading from Holy Scripture. Does anybody have a Bible on them? No. Yeah. Well, can someone go grab a Bible from the nave if it's open? Yeah. We just need a Bible. Any, or you could use your phone. Yeah. Shelly, she's going to use her phone. Okay. Tish, will you read the... The, um, the reading. There's only one reading tonight, and it's from First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 21. So, when you look at this family, the structure of family prayer, um, it basically follows much of the same order as the, as the daily office, as I said, but with a more compressed feeling to it. So you have a psalm, you have this prayer, the Oglasim Light, then you have uh, a reading from Holy Scripture, and in the, psalm, in the place where the psalm is and the place where Holy Scripture is, you can substitute one of the daily office lectionary readings, um, which I, I recommend that, too. Uh, and if you want to know where they are, the easiest place to find them is a website called Legereme. L-E-G-E-R-E-M-E. Legereme. Um, and it, has, it basically just has morning, evening prayer laid out. So you can just use those, um, those, those readings from, that are drawn from that website. Um, so where I got First Peter, whatever it was, First Peter one one through twenty one is from that website. So we'll just take uh, just a moment and uh, and quiet our hearts, and then we'll begin.
together. How priceless is your love, O God. Your people take refuge under the shadow of your wings. For with you is the well of life, and in your light we see light. Let's say the O gladsome light together. O gladsome light, pure brightness of the ever-living Father in heaven, O Jesus Christ, holy and blessed. Now as we come to the setting of the sun, and our eyes behold the vesper light, we sing your praises, O God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are worthy at all times to be praised by happy voices. O Son of God, O giver of life, and to be glorified through all the worlds. shall be holy for I am holy. 
Thanks be to God. You may now offer your own prayers as the Lord leads. Father, we thank you for this time together tonight. We are grateful that you brought everyone here safely. Pray that we would be a community that learns and worships and rejoices together. Pray you be with those who are in grief or sorrow. Remember those who are ill. Pray together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Lord Jesus, stay with us, for evening is at hand and the day is past. Be our companion in the way. Kindle our hearts and awaken hope that we may know you as you are revealed in Scripture and the breaking of bread. Grant this for the sake of your love. Amen. Amen. A couple more notes about family prayer. Um, When you do the daily office lectionary, which, by the way, does everybody know that there are two lectionaries in Anglicanism? Okay, so there's one lectionary that is for Sunday morning, and that appoints the text that we read on Sunday morning. Uh, there's, a second off, there's a second lectionary called the Daily Office Lectionary, uh, and this appoints text to be read on the weekdays, okay, and, and on Saturday as well. Um, and actually, there is a Daily Office Lectionary for Sunday, too, in case you don't make it to church. Uh, but if you use the Daily Office Lectionary, you read through the entirety of Scripture in one year, uh, and you also read through the Psalms once a month. So... That's pretty cool. Um, also, uh, so that's a, a note about the lectionary. Uh, but also there's, and the, way, the place to find that actually, as I said, there's that website, Legere May. Um, but there's also on the Anglican Church website, when you look at Text for Common Prayer, 
um, there's a, a document that has, that's, that's linked there called the Daily Office Lectionary. And if you click on that, it gives you a chart, and it lays out, you know, the Sunday closest to X, right? And you use that to sort of orient yourself where you are in the calendar, and then you go on the weekdays based on that, based on where you are in the calendar. Or you can make it easy on yourself and use Ligari May, like I do mostly. Um, then la- the last note is that the collect uh, down at the bottom, you can either use that collect every time, or you can add, you can add or substitute the collect for the week. And again, that can be found on the Anglican Church website. And there's a, I forget what the name of the document is, but it has the word collects in it. Collects for the Christian year, maybe, is, might be the title of it. Um, but either way, this is all temporary, you know, finding these things on the website. And about a year, we'll have our own, you know, bound prayer book. And this, it'll be a lot easier to find these things. But for now, that's where you can find the collects for the week. So now I'm going to invite Tish up uh, to come talk to us about spirituality of the ordinary. ACNA book, I mean, it's fine and good to use. You're certainly allowed at Ascension to use just the good old 79 Book of Common Prayer, which there's, and then it's actually bound. For people like me, who if you use your computer to read the Bible, you'll look up an hour later and realize that you've been like reading Twitter and Facebook, and then I have to stick to analog. Um, okay. How long do I have? 30 minutes. Okay. Um, let me think about what time that would be. Um, okay. I have so much I could say. Um, so a lot of this is going to be pulled from my book, um, which is, I wrote a book called Liturgy of the Ordinary. I think everyone knows that. So um, if you've read it and this is repetitive for you, I'm sorry. But if you haven't read it, this is like a preview. <laughs> um, and so um, I wanted to start with kind of an introduction to practices as an idea, because that's what we're talking about tonight, is spiritual practices. And Jonathan's going to zero in on Anglican spiritual practices specifically um, and the history around that. But I want to talk about practices as a concept, why we do them. Um, so, um, so the, t- kind, the type of church I grew up in um, tended to think that what discipleship meant was getting the right ideas, orthodoxy, right belief, and kind of putting it deeply enough in your head. And if you get it enough in your brain that somehow by a process of, that was a bit mysterious, our, your life would be transformed. And so we would be formed by the gospel primarily in cognitive ways, through knowing the gospel with our brain. Um, and there's goodness in that. There's really real goodness in that kind of catechesis and growing up um, and learning orthodoxy, and learning the doctrine, and learning scripture. But um, I contend, and this is a lot from James K.A. Smith, whose work I've really based my book on, that the things that generally drive our behavior are not our conscious thoughts. They're not even often what we sort of claim to believe. So, 
and and advertisers know this, right? Like Steve the um, Steve Gates, right? Okay. He's built. Who did the Apple? Steve, Steve Jobs. Jobs. <laughs> <laughs> Steve Jobs. Like I never had to learn a creed to get this device. I don't. When I buy this, I don't say I believe in technology the maker and sustainer of all of life, the chief end of man. I don't have to say that. But I'm given this device and I take up a practice in doing that. Where for me, and I write about this in the book, every morning I began my day with, my, with the screen before I said hello to my husband or children, before any other practice. And so that is training my heart toward a certain end. The idea that um, it's what uh, Christian catechesis, what formation in the gospel is about, is trying to point our hearts towards the things of God. And that certainly involves our mind and engaging God with our mind, but we, um, our hearts are not primarily rational and driven by our mind. They are driven by our guts, our loves, the things that capture our imagination that we find beautiful. Um, the famous example of this James K. Smith uses in his book is going to the mall. When you go to the mall, is a deeply liturgical action. You go in, you are greeted, there are sights, there are smells, those are intentional to draw you into a particular vision of the good life. You walk in, everybody knows what to expect. We know this because we've been catechized in it since we were children. Like if an alien dropped into the mall, it wouldn't be so clear that you walk in and that there's gonna be someone and they say, can, you, can we help you? And you say yes or no. But we know just how this works and there are people and they're standing behind the machine and we go up to it and he says, this is the great transaction. This is the Eucharistic moment of the mall is you hand your credit card to someone and they hand you your purchase and they this is you know this is this is life for you there this is that's the picture of what is this pointing to as the thing that will rescue and capture us and save us that this is something we're formed in so um i just want to bring up the fact that we are formed by um not only the things that get in our brains but by the things that the practices we take up and the way they shape our desires, our guts, to a certain vision of the good life. Um, so when I, um, sometimes when I'm in workshops around the country, I'll talk about um, a verse uh, in Philippians where it talks about us being citizens of heaven. And I'll say, um, so citizenship is a... Um, a, a deeply liturgical act. It's a practice. And so I'll say, what are, what are practices of American citizenship? And people will say, well, you guys can tell me, what are some practices of American citizenship? Voting. Voting, yes. Taxes. That's a huge one. Taxes, yes. <laughs> Voting, taxes, um, holidays that we take july 4th registering a car if you're a, a man um, 
at some point you have to do the draft thing when you're 18. This is um, learning the Pledge of Allegiance that kids do in school even. Um, all of these are deeply, uh, deeply symbolic and they start in precognitive ways. In other words, it's not like we sit our kids down and we say always, you're an American, this is what we believe, let me read you the Constitution. Um, we, we, you know, embrace the Enlightenment as a culture, you need to do that. Like we don't, that's not what we do, but we for, we're formed in these practices. So what I want to say is that spiritual formation, the things we're talking about tonight, are ways to be formed by the practices of heaven. That we are formed as citizens in the, of the United States, we are formed as citizens of heaven. And that that is practice-based and liturgical, like all other citizenship is. So that is what we are talking about tonight. So, um, a few things to keep in mind with that. Um, first of all, uh, we all know, and I just brought up, that liturgy is not just something we do on Sunday, right? It is something we do on Sunday. Uh, it is something all churches do on Sunday. Even if you grew up in a church whose whole identity is not being liturgical, which mine was, um, it's still, I, I've said this multiple times, so some of you probably have heard this. It's really hard for me to go give, see, when I'm on the road, nobody's heard the talk yet. Um, but <laughs> but um, I, my church would have um, really balked at the idea of liturgy and really found its identity else in, in, um, against it growing up. But if I was sick on a Sunday morning, I could tell you within about five minutes of accuracy what was happening at my church at any given time if I wasn't there. So um, the question is not, well, your, did your church have a liturgy or not? The question was, toward what end was that liturgy forming you? Um, so um, we do, we have liturgies of, that we gather together in worship, but we also have liturgies of our daily life practices and rituals that form us. Um, modern neuroscience is showing that about, that less than 5% of most of the decisions we make in a day are um, cognitive. So that actual cognitive thought, Jamie Smith calls the um, uh, a snowball at the, it, at the top of the iceberg that is conscious thought, it's the, or that is our unconscious thought. It's just um, such a small, small amount. What drives a lot of our lives are habits, are rituals, are um, things you do every day without thinking about it. These habits are things that you have ingrained over a life, but they're also things that you've ingrained from your culture often from your parents, from your family culture, from our larger culture. Is, um, and so uh, we often, they often are unexamined. So part of entering spiritual practices is to be sort of intentional about examining some of our habits and practices. Um, if you want more information on that, read my book, because that's kind of what it's all about. Um, 
so bef- I want to, um, so part of what we're talking about tonight is the liturgies of our day, the habits and rituals and practices that form us every day. Um, I talk in my book about, and I just mentioned this, um, that I you know, picked up my phone first thing every morning. And one of the things I did one year during Lent is I decided, I got really curious about people making their bed um, because I never did. And I asked a friend, my friend Bree, um, do you make your bed? And she said she did, but usually right at night before she goes to sleep. Yes, <laughs> that was the right response, which is like, why? Um, and, but I've told this anecdote across the country and in every group of people there are what I call night makers that only that make their bed right at night. This is a common phenomenon. The point is, <laughs> I got really curious about this and so, and people have really strong opinions. People that are into making their bed find it like horrific that I was, you know, well into my 30s and had two children and still wasn't making my bed. But um, so for Lent that year, I decided that I would banish my smartphone from my room and I would make my bed and then I would sit in silence for just a few minutes. Um, So I would do the morning office and then I would sit for three to five minutes in silence. And I did it because I was realizing that through this ritual of constantly going to my phone, I was making myself um, buck at the, any site of silence near. I was running from any kind of silence. And so I just wanted to, in the smallest taste possible, acquaint myself with the discomfort of being with myself, of being the, my friend Alan says, the person I'm most uncomfortable with being alone with is myself, but it's no problem because I'm really good at avoiding myself. Um, and so I wanted to I wanted to sit before the Lord. Um, so this was a very small ritual. It was a very small change in my liturgy. I didn't move to Tibet to serve the poor. I didn't start a bed-making nonprofit to help other people <laughs> make their beds. But this small adjustment in the day just opened up some space of encounter. Um, So one of the things as we are thinking through spiritual practices is I don't want you to feel like this is for nuns and monks and that's it. That there are ways, even in small ways, that wherever you are in life, from, you know, a college student to a having small children to, you know, retired, that we can adjust the liturgies of our life and be intentional about um, thinking about how they are forming us. So um, a couple more things uh, before we go is I actually could talk for a long, long time more. But um, so I do these liturgy audits where um, when I speak, Um, sometimes we'll do like smaller workshops afterwards and um, I might have done this I can't remember if I did this with the women in our women's breakfast but so I give people these audits and they ask just about their day what do you do with the first hour of your day what do you do with the last hour of your day 
What are the things that you notice that you go to when you feel anxious, scared, or lonely? What are the things you notice that you go to when you feel joyful or excited? What are the things that, um, what are the things in our culture that you love, that think are beautiful, that you want to hook into? What are the things in our culture that you that trouble you, that you don't want to be sucked into? What are the things you, um, so I, tons of questions like that. And so we go through kind of, and it just helps people think about their life. And I have found a few things as that, that come up a lot as I have done these in different places. And I'm going to tell them to you because my, my guess is that um, these are ways we tend to think about our day too. Number one, the first comment I get from a lot of people is, um, I don't know. I don't know how I use my time. I don't, I don't think about how I use my time. And when you ask, you know, what do I um, do with my first, you know, 10 minutes of my work time? What do I do with my first um, hour of my day? I just think it's a blank. I just don't know. And so, um, and I deeply identify with that. I definitely do. But I also want to say that, like, this is our life. We are living this life. And um, I talk about this in the book, but one of my very favorite quotes in the world is Annie Dillard says, the way we spend our days is the way we spend our life. Mm -hmm. And so um, there is an important intentionality to the way we live because it is forming you toward an end. The way you spend your time is making you who you are. And so to be thoughtful about who is this time making me. And that doesn't mean that you don't sometimes sit on the couch and eat chips and watch TV because part of who we are is people who know how to rest and know how to, to enjoy good TV. But it does mean that we need to think intentionally about those kinds of choices because who, who we are is being formed by this time. And so if we go through weeks and weeks of our life and we have no idea where we're spending it, it's worth slowing down and, and thinking through how, how, what are the liturgies of our life and, what, and how are they forming us? And are we, are we being intentional about them? Because if we're not, it's not that you're not going to have them, it's that you're gonna pick them up from the culture around you. You're gonna sort of pick them up by what the people around us are doing. So if you live in a kind of, a red state or a red county, you're kind of going to pick up the liturgies of that. And you might sort of like listen to a lot of talk radio because that's what your neighbors do. Or if you're in a blue state in a blue county, you're going to kind of pick up that whatever that is. You're going to sort of pick up what's around you. Um, another comment I get is, man, that was really depressing thinking through what I do with my life. Because if the way you spend your, my, if the way you spend your day is the way you spend your life, I'm spending my life doing dishes for my kids, or I'm spending my life sitting in traffic, or doing like TPS reports for work, or um, whatever. And so I want to just caution again that there can be a tendency then, therefore, to think, oh, like we need to live every moment like, I need to drop out of life and be a monk, or I need to go and be Mother Teresa among the poor. And maybe you are called to that. Maybe you are. But Mother Teresa had to, like, make breakfast, right? 
Mother Teresa, I'm sure, did many, many dishes. Um, so the point is not to pull ourselves out of our routine to some kind of pristine and holy place. The point is to learn the way that these moments of ordinary life, like TPS reports for, book, for work, sitting in traffic, doing your dishes, are places of encounter with God and places of formation for worship. So my friend Grace said, I, when I did the, um, the daily liturgy, I was completely depressed by how many dishes I had to do, um, by how much of my life is spent that way. But when she is doing that, she is serving her family. She has two kids, they eat a lot, <laughs> and she cleans up after them. She's serving her family. And so I think, what is a way that this activity in your life that you're going to do, instead of seeing like just drudgery, which I don't mean she has to be like happy clappy or seeing the doxology while she does the dishes, <laughs> but in what way can this be worship too? In what way is this also your vocation that God, at the beginning of time when he made you, made you to do for the great, for not, for not just the good of your kids, but for the good of the church and for the transformation of the world. So um, this leads to the last thing I get, which is that one time um, we were doing this, we were doing the, the liturgy audit together. And, um, and I said, you know, time was up. And I always ask people to sort of debrief it with me, like, you know, what did you notice? What do you go to when you're anxious? Like, what is something you want to change? What is something really good? Uh, by the way, I almost every single time when we're talking about sort of consolation and desolation, which we might talk about later, I don't know if we're talking about those terms, but like the places of encounter with God, someone always brings up their dog every time. <laughs> I think it's happened in every group I've been in that people encounter Jesus because of the love of their dog. Um, so I'm <laughs> that's like a common one. So we go through these and talk about them, and you, you hear things over and over again. But this one time, this was different a little bit. This guy um, told a story, and he said, my, uh, he said, my mom has um, extreme dementia, and she, she had Alzheimer's and, and dementia, and was um, at the end, was was it was very severe and he said you know my wife and I spend hours and hours a day bathing my mom feeding her taking care of her and he said I filled out my whole sheet and never mentioned my mom and never I never put it down and right before you said we're done I thought oh my gosh my mom this takes hours and hours of my life, and I didn't write it down. And so all of us in the room were like, why in the world would that not occur to you to be like a deeply formative spiritual practice? Like that is probably the chief place that you are in encountering God, needing God, falling on your knees, like, and it takes up a lot of time. And he said, and I thought this was insightful, he said, it's because I would never have chosen this. I would never choose this as a spiritual practice if I had any say in the matter. And I think that we um, can tend to talk about spiritual practices as only those things that we, by choice, insert into our lives. That we go do spiritual practices, right? 
Spiritual practices aren't the things that we find ourselves in, that we, that it, whether it's dishes or something we would never ever choose. Those aren't our spiritual practices. We think spiritual practices are like, you know, having a quiet time, going to church, praying. And I want to say those are spiritual practices, having quiet, like having a quiet time, praying, going to church. We're going to be talking about all those things. But I just want to caution us to not think that's where spiritual practices stop and then we have the rest of our lives. Because some of the most deeply formative places where God is, uh, is at work are the things that we don't insert into our lives and really would never insert into our life if we had a choice in the matter. Um, so I wanted to caution against thinking of this only as something we insert in our lives or thinking um, that we would all be better off if we were monks and could escape from the drudgery that we actually live our lives in to a pristine place of other kind of holiness. Um, okay, that said, we are going to be talking about things like Lectio Divina and um, prayer practices and um, things that we insert into our life tonight. So how can I talk about Things that we insert into our life are these spiritual practices. If I just said, don't think about things uh, that you insert, don't think about spiritual practices as just those things you insert in your life. That is a great question. So the way that I think we can think about this is, um, uh, one of my favorite metaphors for this is learning an instrument. So people that are really great at learning, at, at my friends that are musicians, which is not me, but my friends that are musicians um, can jam in a moment's notice. They can sit down and they can pull something out and they can go, they can work with it. Um, you saw this a few weeks ago when the bishop just picked up the drums and started playing and Chris was like, and now we're adjusting to this. Like in the moment that it was happening, he was adjusting and he was able to do that because he's a really good musician. But he's a really good, he didn't wake up one day and become a great musician. So the way that you get to the point where you can do improvisation is lots and lots of scales. It's lots and lots of practice. It's lots and lots of sitting down and learning your instrument. So the greatest improvisation moments that I have heard are in jazz, right? Incredible jazz musicians. They can just go off. But they learn that through lots of repetitive practices that would like never make it on the EP, right? Like nobody wants to hear Miles Davis learning, right? Mm -hmm. And so when we do things like, um, daily prayer, it's not because that is the only place to encounter God in your day. The point is, is that those are the practices that we internalize so that we go out into our day in a way that is open and alert and attentive to what the Holy Spirit might be doing, to what God is doing in our lives. Those are formative practices that form us so that we can be formed by other things, so that we can be intentional about other things. Those are the moments that help us to think intentionally about our life and our time. Um, 
so that when we go out and we improv, which you all will, because life is contextual and, and it's um, all improvisation. When we go out, we, we have been people who have like trained on the scales of grace, right? So, um, yeah. Um, the last thing I just wanna say <clears throat> is um, I feel a special burden. I, I always kind of have to say this, and I think it's partly because of who I am, my personality, and where I come from is that it's easy anytime we talk about practices, there's gonna be some folks here who are like, this sounds cool. Maybe I'll not wake up with my smartphone tomorrow. Maybe I'll try morning prayer. And there's gonna be some people here who feel completely stressed out by this and feel like we're giving them one more thing to do. And then there's gonna be some folks here who are the perfectionists who are like tell me what to do tell me how many minutes a day to do it and I'm going to do it and I'm going to do it the best of anyone in this church and you will never see anyone ever who's done spiritual practices is going to speak um and so yeah when you're I spoke in New York City and everyone there was like you know like a CEO and uh we I talked about wisdom and someone was sort of like tell me exactly what I need to do every day to cultivate wisdom <laughs> to the minute. <laughs> like wisdom has never been that efficient, but um, fail a lot. Um, anyway, so I want to say, I just, and some of you, you're like, blah, 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 we already know this, but I still feel like anytime we're talking about practices, I just want to remind us that we don't do these things so that God will see us. God's not a machine that we need to put a quarter in to make him work in our life. And we don't do these things so that God could love us. It's not, yeah, your uh, daily prayer will not make God love you. If God doesn't already love you, daily prayer is not going to help. So <laughs> we have to begin with your belovedness. That is the place of, of beginning here. You are beloved in Jesus. Jesus purchased that. If you never do daily prayer in your life, you are beloved in Jesus. The point of these is not to make us beloved. It's to live out of the belovedness that we already are and already have. Right? So um, all of this is mercy. All of this is grace. We're not giving you things to earn God's favor tonight. We are trying to think strategically and thoughtfully about what it is to take up practices that would form us into citizens of heaven. When I was born in America, I was a citizen. But I've spent the rest of my life learning practices of that, right? It wasn't like voting is what made me a citizen. I was a citizen. And then I was catechized into the practices of what I already was, of my citizenship. When you were born in Jesus, you are a citizen of heaven. But spiritual formation is taking up the practices of that citizenship so that you are formed to look like that, so that you might be noticed as a foreigner here, as an alien and a stranger, as someone different, because you've been formed by your citizenship. 
Um, and then last thing here is that this is just an invitation to know God more. So if there is a particular practice that doesn't work for you tonight, don't do it. Try something else. There's a saying in the spiritual formation community that some of you may have heard that's where people say, pray as you can, not as you can't. So that doesn't mean don't take a risk, don't try something. A great example of this for me was um, crossing myself. I didn't really get it at first. I mean, it seemed cool. I didn't have a theological problem with it. Um, but it seemed a little Catholic to me. And um, I don't know, a little hand motion-y. Like, it was just a little. <laughs> so, but I took it up. <laughs> yeah, it seemed a little like, I don't know. I mean, it was cool. I, but partly it's because I was married to Jonathan, who was doing it like every second he could. <laughs> so I reacted the other way. But I took it up as a practice and, um, and have come to just, I mean, what I'm saying is it wasn't like I was like, that's super cool, I want to do that. It was just what we did, right? It was just what I saw my church doing. And it has become such an important practice to me. It's become something that I do in the morning. It's become something I do embarrassingly every time I get on an airplane, because that's a very scary experience for me. It's something I do in the middle of the night when I wake up, because oftentimes I don't have words, and I'm just praying. It is a, it is a body prayer. It is a prayer with my body that God, that God would remind me that I am his, right? That I belong to Jesus. So um, I'm not saying don't take a risk or don't do anything that feels weird. But I am saying um, that there's going to be times and seasons where prayer looks different in your life, and that's okay to roll with. That's okay. When my kids, when I was nursing my children, I would pray when I was nursing. And I felt like a monk because it was every three hours. Um, but that's it. That's the only time I would pray. Um, when, uh, there are times when, when something like the Jesus prayer has become a lot more important to me. When my father was in the hospital, I would just pray the Jesus prayer a lot over him. That wasn't a great time. It would have been inappropriate at that moment to pull out um, Compline, you know, with my family there. But I, was, I could pray the Jesus prayer sort of over and over. So pray how, how you can, not as you can. Um, and I am over time, so I'm going to let John Hey, that was awesome. Um, so, you know, let's practice our faith so we can jam on grace, right? <laughs> that was awesome. I love that. That's great. Um, no, seriously, though, Tish's explanation of how practices reforge, refashion, condition our desires, all of that is exactly what we're doing when we, when we talk about spiritual practices of any sort, right? And she, she argued that anything in your life can be a spiritual practice if viewed from the right perspective and practiced, like, in the light of Christ. Uh, but there are specific kinds of practices that we give ourselves to that help us actually be able to see the rest of our lives in that light. Uh, so I want to highlight just five of those um, tonight. Uh, one of them is a rule of life. So you've got the sheet in front of you, yeah? Um, we should have a sheet that looks like this. So I want to highlight just these five practices. There's many, many more. I mean, she mentioned examine. I didn't, I'm not 
getting into that tonight, um, but I'd be happy to talk to you about that later. If you've never done examine, it's a great prayer, um, but or it's great. It's a great spiritual practice. Um, but I'm just going to hit these five because they've been very meaningful to me. So rule of life, praying the hours, lectio divina, the Jesus prayer, and sacramental confession. And Tish mentioned the Jesus prayer earlier as uh, as being really important to her in a very specific season of her life. And so I'll, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. But I wanted to start with the the rule of life. So. Who has heard of this? Who has a rule of life? Who's done anything related to this before? Anybody? Gene? Okay, fine. Anybody else? Good, okay. Anybody want to explain what they, what they understand a rule of life to be? They have some experience with it? No? I'll put you guys on the spot. That's nice. See, you've hit two things there. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily want to say that it's like weird that we have individual rules. Um, but I, I do think that to, to, yeah, that's right. It is a contemporary adaptation. Um, and, and I also think it doesn't make sense unless there is a corporate rule to which that individual rule is tailored. So I'm going to talk about that and I appreciate you bringing it up. But what a rule of life is, is a devotional discipline where I intentionally look at what I'm doing with my time and my body and my life, okay? And then I try, I seek to order that around practices that are going to actually commit me to Christ, that are, gonna, that are going to help me think of Christ all the time. Um, so the, the idea is uh, that there, um, there is a single overarching goal for our life. There's a place we're trying to get, and that is Christ-likeness. Right? I mean, we are trying to be transformed into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. But that's like really amorphous. It's like, that sounds awesome. Let's do it. But the problem is, <laughs> the problem is like, yes, but how? Right? I mean, yes, but how? Because that overarching desire that we have, that place we're trying to get to, it's like constantly outbid by Cheetos and like, you know, social media and TV shows. All that stuff always sounds better than, like, you know, doing the thing that we know we ought to do, right? Um, and so, so because those, you know, those lesser desires, and they're not bad things. I love Cheetos, you know? I mean, they're not bad things, but they outbid this greater desire, this weightier desire that we have because that's abstract. And it feels like, how do I, how do I enter into that? And sometimes it feels really bad. Like, I don't want to do that. It sounds boring or it sounds awful. It sounds, it sounds horrific to enter into. And so the rule of life is, is, is actually about regulating those lesser desires, actually intentionally saying no to those lesser desires and yes to the practices that are going to help us enter into a life in Christ. Um, and actually the word rule, you know, lest you be thrown off by that word itself, because for us it tends to mean something like a law or, you know, some kind of judicial pronouncement. Um, and so it's like, you know, is this legalistic? Actually, no, it, it Number one, having a rule in the first place presupposes a gracious relationship with God. There's no sense of earning your way towards a closer relationship with God or earning his favor in some way. This is about putting aside those things which frustrate our ability to see God and taking on those practices that are going to enable us, that are going to purify and sanctify our vision so that we can actually see how much we are loved, right? How much we belong. Um, 
So it regulates these lesser desires. So the, the word rule comes from the Latin word regula, which is, you can hear in there, it's the word that we also get the word regulate from. And it's actually helpful to think about it in those categories because that's exactly what it's doing, right? It is regulating these lesser desires so that we can give ourselves to the greater desires, okay? So that's what a rule of life is. And uh, Karen is right that its, its inception point is in monastic communities, particularly, I mean, I talked the first week about the community that was established by Pacomius, which was a, um, it's a, it was a, a kind of uh, communal monasticism um, called Cenobitic monasticism from the word Kenobium, which means military barracks. So I mentioned all that the first week. Um, but this Cenobitic style of life, this communal style of monasticism, had to be governed. And so what they came up with in order to govern these communities, what are, they, what are you going to do at this time, right? What are you going to do at this time, and, that, and what are you going to do at that time? How are we going to relate to each other? All that stuff had to be governed. And so what they created in order to govern these communities was a rule, right? And the most famous of these is the rule of St. Benedict. So actually, you guys should pick that up. It's an amazing little book. I mean, it's, a, it's actually an astonishing book. He actually begins by saying, um, I've taken a lot of these other rules uh, into, uh, under examination, and I've decided not to include anything in my rule that will be harsh or burdensome. He was about a flourishing human life. Now, you might read it and be like, dude, that's like not going to lead to a flourishing life. Like he says at one point, uh, let me just read this real quick. It's pretty great. He says, um, the monks who sing less than the Psalter with the customary canticles in the space of a week show themselves indolent in their devout service. Since we read that our Holy Father strenuously fulfilled in one day what we lukewarm people take a whole week to complete. Now, you may look at that and say, uh, I, don't know if it, I don't know if that's like not harsh or burdensome. But you, you get the point, right, is that the, the rule was intended to govern the common life of the monks. And, and he thought this is to relax this rule of having to say the whole Psalter in a single day was the way that he could help his monks actually flourish and enter very seriously for a lifetime and, and with stability into this pattern of life. Um, so the, the, its origins are in a kind of communal monasticism, but... Really, since the 16th century, um, when a lot of uh, different, um, they were monastic orders, but they weren't monks. It's, it's hard to explain. Um, people like the Jesuits, okay? People, people like uh, the, the Carmelites, who were out there um, actually among the people, um, trying to help with spiritual direction and preaching and converting people. Um, they adapted these communal rules to, um, to, to a lay audience and helped them create individual rules. And so that's really where you get this idea that there's a, there's a kind of adaptation to an individual life of a, of a communal rule. But the individual rule doesn't make sense outside of this participation in a shared framework of the church. So what I'm going to point us to, actually, in thinking about what would an Anglican rule of life look like, I'm going to point us to our doctrine, our church doctrine, which can be found in our catechism called To Be Christian. Uh, if you haven't seen that, um, again, it's all on the website. You can find it on the website. Um, and you just find the link that says Catechism. It's called To Be a Christian. You can also buy a nice leather-bound copy on Amazon, which I prefer. Uh, but questions 251 through 255 are all about the Anglican rule of life. So 251 begins, what is a rule of life? Question, catechism, you know, is a series of questions and answers, if you're not familiar with the idea of a catechism. It, it teaches church doctrine through a, ser a series of questions and answers. So question 251 is, what is a rule of life? A rule of life is a devotional discipline in which I commit to grow in grace as I resist sin and temptation and to order my worship, work, and leisure as a pleasing sacrifice to God. So you see, it's encapsulating the whole of life, work, work worship, and leisure, all within that, the penumbra of that rule. 
Um, so it's a devotional discipline that focuses on the intentional ordering of our time and the use of our bodies. And then 252 is great. It asks, why do you need a rule of life, right? Like, why do I need to be intentional about my time and about my commitments? Well, I need a rule of life because my fallen nature is disordered, distracted, and self-centered. That sound like, does that sound familiar? I mean, it sounds very familiar to me. Um, bad habits often rule my life, and so I need to establish godly habits that form Christ-like character. So these practices are not, again, they're not one-offs. They're things that we need to build into the structure of our life, the warp and woof of our life, you know? Um, there's a guy named Gary Hansen who wrote a book called Kneeling with Giants, which is a great book on different prayer practices that he's learned from the, from the history of the church. And he says in that book, I think it's really helpful, he says, look, these are, I'm, I'm basically like putting out a buffet before you. Like, I want you to try some of these on and uh, try them for at least two weeks. But if it's like, if it doesn't work, then try a different one. You know, the, the, these are not magic. They, they're, they're just intentional ways of reshaping our attention and our focus. And so we, we, as we build them into to our life as habits, they begin to reframe things. So there's a basic Anglican rule of life that teaches us how to pray. And question 253 is about that. What is the Anglican rule of life? The church invites me to its life of common prayer as a rule of life. So the prayer book is actually the basis of the Anglican rule of life. And so the prayer book teaches us to pray in three different ways. The first is weekly communion. That is the central kind of pivot point from which everything else flows. We gather together. We are the assembly, the body of Christ. And as we gather together, we, we are fed by word and sacrament and then dispersed into the world. That is the central pivot point that shapes our whole existence and our our personality, our, uh, our orientation towards the world, all of that has its focus and its center of gravity in the Eucharist week after week. And so a central piece of a, uh, an Anglican rule of life is going to involve consistent, disciplined attention at worship. Like you don't just skip because you're like, uh, well, you know, I didn't feel like it today. I wanted to watch the soccer game or whatever it was. You know what I mean? Like, you, you don't do that. Like, you, you actually, this, this becomes the thing that structures the rest of your time, right? You come to weekly communion because that's, that's where you're going to find the center of gravity of your identity. And then secondly is the daily offices. Now, I mentioned earlier as we began to do family prayer that the daily office is designed to bring weekly communion into your ordinary life, into your ordinary routine. And so we pray these prayers of the church, right? I mean, I mentioned that Fos Hilleron is this ancient prayer that we get from Basil the Great. I mean, we enter into the common life of the church with these words that the church has given us to pray. And we read the scriptures of the church that we would read together. Anyone who is, who is praying the daily office is going to be praying those same scriptures with you, which is kind of a cool thought, right? Um, and there's a, a really interesting passage uh, that guy Gary Hansen that I mentioned. Um, he says that one of the things that's most that was most compelling to him about uh, praying, the, praying the daily office was, that, was the company. He just felt like, I'm praying together with all the saints, and this is reminding me of that. It's not like me and Jesus. No, it's like me and the body, like all in relation to Jesus. And that's a really great thing about praying the daily office. So weekly communion, daily offices, and then what the catechism calls private devotions. Now this covers the whole gamut of things, right? That's like, you know, your, your own free prayers that you offer to God. Maybe you, if you grew up evangelical like I did, you learned the Acts prayer, uh, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Like you hit all those notes in, in free prayer. And that's, that's included within the ambit of private devotions. But this also includes other things like acts of recollection or the examine prayer or meditation 
or any of these other things that we might enter into as, uh, as, as practices that we select in order to, to drive our devotional life, to drive our attention towards Jesus. Um, so that's like any Anglican rule of life, right? At, like if you, if, you create, if you craft a rule of life for yourself, like it should include these elements because this is the communal framework within which your individual rule makes sense. Does that make sense to everybody? Yeah. Okay. Um, so this rule, the catechism tells us, I love this language, teaches me when to pray, how to pray, and for what to pray so that I may grow to love and glorify God more fully. And I really like that language. I think that's helpful. Like what to pray, when to pray, how to pray. Like that's great. Um, okay. So, um, uh, as you're thinking about if you want to create a rule of life, if you want to experiment with this, I've given you a worksheet that's kind of preliminary to writing a rule of life. Uh, Father Jack Gabig gave me this. I found it really, really helpful. Um, but it's, you know, if you look at it, the first three things on the list are office, Holy Eucharist, personal prayer, right? I mean, it's those, it's those, those threefold, uh, threefold structure of prayer that I, I mentioned from the catechism. And then you've got special devotions, sacramental confession, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Spiritual direction, fasting, deni- fa- fasting, self-denial, and abstinence. Bi- the Bible, uh, reading the Bible, spiritual reading, study, tithing and almsgiving, retreats, service and work, and self-care. All these things are possible things to enter into your rule of life. You don't have to do all of these, but it's but it's it's like the, the whole point of this exercise is to become intentional about you know what do I actually do with my time? To, like to do the liturgical audit that Tish was talking about earlier. Do that liturgical audit and figure out how do I how do I spend my time and, and if I look at it and I look at it and, and I, I think about my life and I think no my life isn't actually oriented towards the thing I want it to be oriented towards then you can begin to become intentional and then that second the second column there given my life circumstances what might be the ideal what kinds of things could I build in and the brilliant thing about a rule of life is that it can change over time right I mean you 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 create one set of expectations for yourself and then you realize like I'm not doing any of this. It's like because I've tried to be too strenuous. Given my circumstances, I wasn't capable of actually doing the thing that I thought I could do. And so rather than finding yourself frustrated, you're like, well, what could I do? What would be realistic? And you reshape the rule around that. Yeah. She told me the other day I don't have a conscience. I think it's a little too far. That's a little too far. <laughs> you didn't have to share that. Yeah, I did. <laughs> of course I had to share that. <laughs> anyway, it's fine. Don't worry. We still love each other. Um, but, we, uh, but he doesn't feel guilty. That just, I don't know. Like, whatever. I mean, I think it's because his parents told him they were proud of the lie. Um, so, but, yeah. <laughs> I didn't do examine. I like, I shouldn't be a priest. I have to give up my orders. I mean, I'll just feel, so I need to be a lot, just in light of that, I really need to take Jack's advice here at the bottom of the page to only try to make it one new thing at a time, very seriously. So what I'm saying is um, know yourself, you know, well, when you do this. And if, if you're the type that's going to feel crushed by this, like the, 
type that, that will like new challenges, then, then, then go for it, right? Um, but yeah. So um, we actually have two community groups at Ascension that are, that are based around um, rules of life. There's a communal rule of life and then individual rules of life that are based on that communal rule. Uh, and they're, they're called the community of St. Barnabas. They're, they're kind of two different cells of that same, um, of that same kind of ethos or order. Uh, and so, so uh, they, there's possible areas of focus that they have kind of suggested, um, which I, I think is actually kind of helpful. So in addition to what Jack has listed here, you could think about you know, corporate worship, prayer, Bible reading, cycles of fasting and feasting. So thinking about the church calendar and how that would enter into your, your regimen or your routine. Um, so in, in, in seasons of fasting, you could think, okay, what am I going to build into my rule during Lent and Advent, right? Um, or what am I going to do special for Holy Week? Things like that. Or um, what am I going to do on Fridays or Wednesdays? Because uh, those, are, those are also appointed as days of fasting in the church. Um, so there's things like that you could begin to think about and tinker with as you, as you do this. Uh, you could add in the discipline of study. Um, study is, doesn't, doesn't come hard for me, actually. I don't have to put it in my rule because it's like, <laughs> what, I, what I need to do is like figure out how to study less and put that in my rule. Um, but, you know, things like hospitality. Um, how will I be accountable for my rule, right? Like who's, who am I going to like give this to so this person can ask me how it's going? Not so they can judge me, right? And again, like, this is not about sin and salvation. This is about, like, being able to see the salvation that has been wrought for you better. So when you fail at your rule, that's not called a sin. It's called a fault. Um, and so faulting on your rule is kind of no big deal. You just do it, try, try again tomorrow. You know what I mean? And it, again, if you're, if you're faulting too much, it's like, it's like okay, well, this, that's, like, too strenuous. Let me try, let me try again. Okay. So um, you might also think about things like physical exercise, sleep. I have to, like, think about showers in my rule. You know, because <laughs> um, I just don't think about this stuff. You know what I mean? I'm like, I'm a very, I'm a very bad human being. I'm like, I'm, I'm like, you know, how long has it been since I showered again? I actually don't know. My rule is like, like you have to take a shower at least every other day. Think about it. You know, and be intentional. I'm confessing stuff because you need to know. Like, this is just, this is just like ordinary life. You know what I mean? This is like trying to just be intentional and attentive to the things that God is doing in your life. Okay. Why is taking care of yourself, yeah, self-care? No, yeah, I'm saying because, um, yeah, like what's the theology behind you putting that in, that in your rule? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think that God wants me to flourish as a human being. I think God wants all of us to flourish as a human being. And uh, we, we live a very embodied faith. I mean, uh, William Temple, um, Archbishop of Canterbury in the early part of the 20th century said, Christianity is the most materialistic of all religions because it is the religion of the incarnation. Your bodies matter. My body matters, even though my basic orientation in the world is essentially Gnostic. Like, I, I'm, I, I'm, I would be like a brain on a stick, right? <laughs> Except that the Lord found me through Anglicanism and taught me that my body matters. And that my body matters in worship. So how I use my body, whether I take care of it, whether I, you know, drink too much, whether I do all these other things, like, I mean, I, I've got to actually use it to devote myself to God. And so I can't be doing those things. I actually need to take showers and not drink too much and not do things that are going to, you know, um, create difficulties for my health, right? So, um, so there is, you know, there's a profound kind of incarnational theology that grounds um, the self-care aspects of a rule of life, okay? Um, let me move on because uh, we have very little time left, unfortunately. Um, all right. So the, second, the second practice I want to look at, uh, and I'll, I'll be happy to talk 
to, uh, at length. You can email me. We can meet. I'll talk to you about any of this stuff at greater length, but just to get through all of it tonight. Um, the second practice would be praying the hours. Now, the, this is, um, it kind of overlaps to some degree with morning and evening prayer. We talked about the daily offices, and it overlaps because what Thomas Cranmer did, his genius in the Book of Common Prayer, was to take an older structure of fixed hour prayer in the life of the church and turn it into something that everybody could do, okay? So, um, so morning and evening prayer kind of take over uh, in the daily life of, of lay people what the, the fixed hour prayer, the seven periods of fixed hour prayer in the church used to be for monks, okay? So um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about both of those, um, but I'm going to focus on the bigger structure of the fixed hour prayer. Um, so just to begin, Christians from the very beginning of Christianity have prayed seven times a day, actually um, eight times a day. Uh, if you count the vigil, that many of them did at night, okay? So there was prayer at 3 a.m., 6 a.m., 9 a.m., 12 p.m., 3 p.m., 6 p.m., 9 p.m., midnight, and 3 a.m., okay? If you were, like, really serious, you would do all of those prayers, okay? Uh, I think in no Benedictine monastery has there actually been uh, someone who did all of those regularly. Uh, it's really hard to do, actually, if you, you, you don't sleep enough if you do that, <laughs> uh, just so you know. Um, <laughs> but, you know... But, but so, so th these, these how, how did this kind of like prayer periods come into existence, right? I mean, where does that come from? Um, actually, it comes from the Bible. <laughs> you know? um, what's really interesting is uh, you can find different patterns for fixed hour prayer in Scripture. Um, and there, there's some that are kind of a morning and evening pattern. That's what Cranmer kind of took over and, and made, made normative in the Book of Common Prayer. There's three times a day, morning, noon, and night. And there's seven times a day, okay? So we see uh, three times a day in Psalm 55, 17, evening and morning and at noon I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. Um, we see the pattern of morning and evening in Joshua 1, 8, keep this book of the law always on your lips, meditate on it day and night. So that's two times a day. Uh, also the Shema uh, in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6, the, the central prayer of the Israelites. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. How? Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down and when you get up. There's that two times a day thing again. Okay? Um, three times a day is in Daniel, uh, Daniel chapter 6. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, uh, that, that anyone who, who prayed to, to any other god besides uh, the king was to be put to death, he went home to his upstairs room with the windows open towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Just as he had done before, right? See, the three times a day practice was Daniel's practice, okay? Uh, and then lastly, Psalm 119, 164, which became the inspira inspiration for all monks everywhere forever. Seven times a day, I praise you for your righteous laws, okay? So there's a seven times a day pattern. Okay, what's really interesting is for a thousand years, a thousand years, this was just prayer for everybody, like Christians, Jews, Muslims, all of us prayed this way, fixed our prayer. It's like, you know, there, there, you just realize like the sun's at that point in the day, it's now about, it's about the sixth hour, it's time to pray. You know what I mean? So you, you pause your secular time, you interrupt it to sanctify it every three hours. It was just normative. It's what you do. And it's really only 
honestly, it's really only after the Reformation that we lose this. Although, I will say that, the, that most of the Reformation prayer books, most of the prayer books that were created in the early Reformation still have this basic structure. So really, we might even think about this as being a kind of casualty of um, an amorphous evangelicalism that's like committed exclusively to free prayer. Okay? It's like the only prayer that counts is prayer that comes directly from the heart and is voiced with the lips. Uh, so you don't want to pray anybody else's prayer, so that's not authentic. No, that's ridiculous. <laughs> like, authenticity is way overrated, people. Uh, <laughs> you can pray with great sincerity the prayers of the church, and then you enter into the reality that what makes you a Christian is that you belong to the body of Christ. Okay? You belong to the body of Christ by faith. It is your own personal faith. That does matter. But the reason that we belong is that we belong to his body. So we can pray the prayers of his church. Um, okay. So, um, again, this finds kind of a cogent expression in monasticism. Uh, Benedict says in the rule, Let us therefore render praises to our Creator for his just judgments at these times. Lauds, prime, terse, sext, non, vespers, compline. Those are the seven hours, seven fixed hours of prayer. And then let us rise at night to praise him. So the vigil at midnight. Um, I wonder if Benedict ever did all of them all the time. That's, that's my question. Uh, Gregory the Great seems to think that he did. Um, but, you know, we don't know. Okay, so what are these prayers? When we pray these fixed-hour prayers, what are they? Well, it's primarily the Psalter and the Lord's Prayer. That's the basic structure of it. Uh, and then free prayer that we add to that, our own petitions that we add to those, that basic kind of structure. Um, and, and there's a lot of books that have tried to, you know, resource this for the contemporary era. Uh, one that I would suggest, if you're going to use a, an actual printed book, would be Phyllis Tickle's... Uh, is that, what is it called? Do you remember what it's called? The Divine Hours? Or do you, is it Divine Hours? Is that what it's called? Yeah. Um, so I'd recommend that. She does it seasonally. Yeah, she does it by season. So you, yeah, that's right. So you, there's several different volumes of this. But you could experiment with that if you wanted to use a book. What I do, actually, is I set alarms on my phone because I don't know what time it is. So my alarm goes off, and there's a little, like, awful percussion alarm thing, and I have to turn it off real fast because it bothers me so much. Uh, but then I'm like, okay, now I have to actually open the app and pray. So I have an app. It's a Catholic app called Laudate, L-A-U-D-A-T-E. And on that app, there is the Liturgy of the Hours. So you can use that. That's what I use. Uh, and you can select the time that you're going to pray. And it has, you know, it has the name of the office, but then also what time it is. So it's kind of, you know, you don't have to memorize what the offices are called. Can I ask you a question? You may. Because I love this. Yeah. I want this. Yes. Uh -huh. Oh, yeah. Great question. Um, this is not a law. This is, this is a devotional practice. Exactly. So, number one, if I'm in a meeting, like if I'm in staff meeting, right, and it, it's like past noon, I just don't do it. You know, I mean, that's fine. No big deal. Um, but actually, sometimes it's a real opportunity to pray with people. I'm like, uh, my alarm goes off and I'm in the middle of a meeting. I'm like, hey, would you join me in praying the, the office for this hour? And most people will say yes to that, actually. So, I mean, you know, if you're meeting with a Christian, I, mean, I, I would assume that you're, you wouldn't ask just some random person. Yeah. Praying the office usually is, at most, if you know what you're doing, you're practice 10 minutes. That's right. Wow, 10 minutes is long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's not the shorter one, but like, it's not this super. Yeah, it's not elaborate. Yeah. Yes. Great point. It is, um, it's really more like 
between two and five minutes. It's well, it's. Yeah. Yeah. If you use the app that I use, Laudate, it's really just reading reading prayers off of the page, right? So it's like it puts the psalms it put the psalms out there. You read one of the psalms. You read a sentence of scripture, and there's a couple of there's an opening antiphon, and then there's one prayer at the end, and then you add your free prayers. So honestly, it takes me five minutes to pray it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think most evangelicals like, you know, Oswald Chambers, morning and evening, that idea stays consistent. Um, although, you know, I mean, there, there is this problem of the polarization of like what is personally authentic to me and what is given. And there's no there's a there's a deep suspicion of what's received or what's given um, because because tradition has been abused. Uh, in the history of the church as a kind of club. It's like, you have to do it this way because that's the way it's always been done. That's the only holy way to do it. Um, well, that's not true, but, it, but the, 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 the other um, side of that isn't true either. I mean, like, it's not best to simply just utter your own prayers as they occur to you. Well, I mean, like, one of the reasons why that might not be is that, is that you're, you're, you might find yourself treading on the same path, right? You might, not, you might not actually pray the whole compass of things that you should be praying. Because you're not praying with the church. And if you pray with the church, you're actually minded to, to, um, to expand the ambit of your prayers, you know? I mean, I love one of the things, you know, so I, I use in a, uh, sometimes, I, I, use, I have a lot of different apps that I use. It's, it's actually it's kind of hard to keep track of. I'm a very untidy person, you know? You don't have to pray apps. I use a lot of apps, though. Uh, I, I sometimes listen to the Daily Office read to me by uh, Father Michael Jarrett, and he lives down in El Paso. Um, and he reads the he reads the daily office morning and evening. It's awesome. Um, so I sometimes do that because well, number one, sometimes I'm driving home when I'm doing evening prayer, um, and so I can't actually you know look at a page. Um, but also because I really like praying with someone else, right? And so it's like I'm actually praying with Michael. So um, that's good. Um, Say the name of that app. Yeah, it's called. It's not. It's actually not an app. It's a podcast. It's called the Trinity Trinity uh, Mission. Trinity Mission, I think, is what it's called. He's an um, ACNA priest. Yeah, he's an ACNA priest. He just reads the daily office right. with you every day. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. Trinity Mission. Uh, I also use an Episcopal app called Mission St. Clair, which they have a prayer app, and you just you kind of scroll through, and it's the prayers read on the page. They're just written on the page. Um, and um, I really like that one because at the, end of the, at the end of the prayer service, there's an opportunity to pray for the different churches of the world and different countries. Like, you wouldn't think to do that, but there you go. Like, it's like, here, pray for Ethiopia. You know what I mean? They're like, oh, okay, well, I don't even know what's going on in Ethiopia. And so sometimes I'm like, I've never even heard of that country. I need to go figure out where it is. I, like, take, you know, I write down, I need to go figure out where that country is, and then I look it up later on a map. Oh, that's in Africa, or that's in, like, that's in, like, the, that, that sort of vague Eastern European area that I don't know where any of the countries are. You know what I mean? Like, that's, so it's actually a really wonderful way to expand the scope of your, your affiliation with your Christian brethren. You know what I mean? It's pretty amazing. Um, okay. John, can I ask two questions about that? Yeah, sure. Like, just um, one in response to the question about connecting with evangelical heritage. I think you two all just out of evangelical heritage. And I would say for me, like, realizing, like, who John can briefly touch 
most HR care is descriptive. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so if you are from a tradition where it's about being in the work and about being so descriptor, then you're like, oh, this is a practice that gives me descriptor. Right. Like I might not quite understand its origins or its history or whatever, but I know I'm supposed to know Bible, so mm -hmm. this is good. Yeah. Um, and I'm also I also know I'm supposed to pray for the world or pray for missionaries. You know, yeah. so like that kind of like given uh, specific prayer prompts that the very office can engage. Um, it, it, I just want to say like that that sense of like I can connect this from that if that dream is a question mark for somebody, it's like, oh, it's basically scripture. And even yeah. stuff that isn't obviously scripture actually it is, you know, because it's rewritten. Well, and then and yeah. so I also want to say that it's a jump starting this practice mm -hmm. because Yeah, that's really helpful. So to repeat it for the podcast, she said, uh, number one, uh, most of the fixed hour prayer is simply repetition of scripture, which is really great. And to give a, an example of that today, I was, uh, I, was, uh, I think it was three o'clock. I, I did uh, uh, the Laudate app and uh, the, the concluding sentence of scripture was from First John. And I was like, that's not in the Bible. And then I went and I was like, yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's not a special version of First John or anything like that. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, so there's that, and then uh, you know, then she also said that if you, it's kind of since it's unfamiliar, one way to jumpstart it would be to go to a Benedictine monastery where they're doing this practice already five to seven times a day, and just participate, like just go pray with the brothers or the sisters. And then when you come home, yeah. Right. Yeah. Very good. Okay. So I, I got a I got a rush now. I was gonna say like why should you do this? I'm trying to make a case for it. Um, but the the one thing that I will say from this from the, from all of this, I had like four things. Right. I was gonna have a whole litany. But the one thing that I will say is that it's it, it it's kind of like drill. Right. It's kind of like doing musical scales, as Tish said. Uh, Gary Hansen actually says when it comes to prayer, the office is like practicing the scales when you're learning a musical instrument. So that's actually a common analogy. Um, not that it wasn't awesome so when you one, said it. One more analogy. <laughs> one thing I was going to say yeah. during it is I had a um, priest friend or mentor of mine in college that would say um, that uh, these kinds of prayers in scripture, it's like crushing a rose in your hand um, and putting it in your pocket. So all day long when you're doing one, you're touching your hand. Hmm. That's right. In this, um, that our, everything I, I would make a case most things in our culture train us against beauty. They mm -hmm. train us for, for efficiency and pragmatism. Mm -hmm. That's why we have parking lots. And consumption. And consumption. Um, and I and so these tr these practices are training us towards the beauty of God. That's right. Absolutely. Amen. Um, all right, let me turn to Lectio Divina. Uh, I'm going to try to do this as quickly as possible because I still got like two more. It's, like, it's actually, um, and I want to. Okay. Um, so 
Lectio Divina uh, is a, an example of a, a type of prayer which we could call meditation, um, or some, some traditions would call it contemplation. Uh, these terms get kind of all mixed up in the tradition, but, um, but it's, it's really a, an, a kind of an example of meditation or contemplation or contemplative prayer. Um, and, and what meditation is, is simply uh, looking at what you are attending to, right? Like, what are you actually ruminating on in your heart and being intentional about replacing that rumination with something else, namely the person of God, okay? Um, so um, the, uh, James Wilhoyt and um, Evan Howard have this book called Introducing Lectio Divina, which I highly recommend. Um, it's a nice kind of introduction to the practice. And here's what they say. They say, we all meditate. We all think about things that hook us. In other words, that get our minds and our hearts rolling on a particular theme or topic. I mean, we get anxious about something and we begin to obsess about it. That's actually meditation. We're meditating on the thing that makes us anxious, that causes us to fear. Um, or, or we get obsessed about, you know, um, thinking about a particular food, like, you know, oh, I really, really want pizza, or I really want a beer, or whatever it is, and we start to obsess about that. That's meditation. That's exactly what that is. So we all think about things that hook us. The psalmist called his automatic meditations, automatic meditations, that's nice, what do we go to naturally, you know, as it were, naturally, those are our automatic meditations. He called those the meditation of my heart in Psalm nineteen fourteen. And he prayed that they, along with his words, would be pleasing to God. Whether they be unhealthy fears or godly tears, our thoughts return again and again to familiar thought paths. In fact, we often spend mental energy trying to turn off some of these seemingly automatic meditations. You ever had a, an obsession that you couldn't get rid of? Like it's just kind of stuck there and you're, you're just, you, you keep kind of circling around on that? Sometimes songs are like that for me. There's one that Tish and I have been singing over and over again in our house. Uh, but our, our hearts are meditating upon that song. Thankfully, it's an, it's an amazing, like, Christian song. It's, it's, it's really, like, moving and, you know, animating. So it's good meditation. Um, but but the, these are the automatic meditations of our hearts are the things that in many cases we're trying to push back on. And that's what meditation is about. It's about trying to reorient the automatic processes of our hearts so that they, they turn more natively, more naturally towards God. We're trying to build in, as it were, a kind of second nature where our med the meditations of our heart are towards God. So uh, Lectio Divina is, is, is one way to practice meditation, and it's a deeply scriptural way. And again, it's, it's, um, it's a prayerful reading of the text that has its basis in the Bible itself, right? I mean, we, we think about the psalmist talking about how he, he meditates upon the law of God day and night, right? I mean, that, that idea of meditating upon the word is a, is a richly biblical theme, and it has its, you know, foundations all the way through the Christian tradition. So this is not a kind of a foreign imposition upon the text. It's there in the text itself. Um, in fact, we might think of, because, because the New Testament did not become the canon of the church until the second century, that the New Testament documents themselves are a kind of inspired meditation upon the Old Testament, which was the canon of Scripture for the apostles. So this is actually, you know, something that goes, that it's, in, it's built into the fabric itself of Christianity. And so it's, it's important not to see it as simply a kind of technique, like we're just approaching the text in this, you know, uh, methodical way that uh, we're, you know, we're just, um, just trying to appropriate it for some purpose. It's actually a process that has its basis in Scripture itself, and it's a, it's a gentle 
process that, that God gives us in order to internalize this text and allow the text to become the meditations of our hearts. Now, I, I think about this a lot because uh, the, when the, the early, early monks in the 4th century, when they thought of prayer, what they thought of essentially was praying the Psalms. And they all, most of these monks were illiterate laypersons lay who were living out in the desert. So they, they actually didn't have texts to read. What they did was they memorized the whole Psalter. And the Psalter became the language of their heart. It became the language that bubbled up when they needed to pray. Um, they, they, they spoke the words of the psalmist, and that enabled them to read the book of the heart, actually, and to, to, to go deeper into its depths. So that's actually what we're striving for in Lectio Divina. Um, so the process has a kind of rhythm to it and a framework. There's uh, essentially kind of four rungs. Um, if you think about it as a kind of ladder, you know, you're, you're ascending a ladder in this process. It has four rungs. Uh, the first one is silence, okay? So before you actually even read the text, you devote the time to God, and you sit silently for as long as you can bear, really. Now, for some of us, that's like seven seconds. But, like, but you know, you can build up over time uh, and become comfortable with longer stretches of silence um, so that you could, you could maybe begin with a, you know, a five-minute time of silence. And, and maybe one way you do this is you set a timer, you know? Timers are wonderful things, actually. Um, so you could, you could sit quietly for, for up to five minutes before you approach the text and you devote that time to God and you, you, ask, God to, you ask God to enter in uh, to this time. You devote it to him. Uh, the second is, um, the, the second rung is called in the tradition meditatio, which is really meditation. Um, it's, it's the seeking. Um, actually, I'm sorry, let me back up. Uh, the, the, the first one is lectio. I'm sorry, I, I, I skipped a step. The first, the first step is silence. Then you have lectio. And lectio is simply a, 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 an attentive, prayerful reading of the text. You're not looking for anything in particular. You're just trying to read the text prayerfully. Okay? And then after you've read the text, you sit with the text. Again, silence. Silence is a big part of Lectio Divina. Um, it, it surrounds all the different parts of it. So, lectio, silence. Then comes meditatio. Sorry? You, you, you can or you don't have to. Um, but I find it really helpful to read the text out loud. Um, and, and, you know, there's a good basis for this. I mean, number one, in the early church, uh, no one read silently. I mean, everyone read out loud. Um, and it was really interesting. There's a moment in the Confessions where Augustine um, walks into uh, the, essentially the office, the study of the Bishop Ambrose in Milan, and Ambrose is sitting there with a book reading silently, and he's like, that's like a magician. How is he doing that? <laughs> um, because everybody had to read out loud. I mean, the texts were, they were written by hand, and they were all in capital letters, and the, le and the words all ran together. So you had to be trained how to read a text. Um, so it was really hard to do. So you had to read out loud. So when the text of Scripture were, re were read out loud, I mean, the reason why you read the text of Scripture out loud rather than, like, now turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 1 or whatever, and let's all read silently. We read it out loud because this is what the apostles This is what the apostles did. This is what they did in the temple. This is what they did in the synagogues. Forever, this is how Christians have read. Okay? So it does help to read things out loud. You hear nuances and things you wouldn't catch otherwise. Um, okay, so you've got the, the first lectio, then you've got silence, and then you've got meditatio. So in the meditatio, what you do before you actually do the second reading, um, so you're going to read the same text again. It's always just one text that you're meditating on. So you read, you read the text again. Before you do, you invite God to speak a word or a phrase from the text to you, okay? And if it, if it doesn't, like, happen the first time, just sit silently and then do it again. And just continue to invite God to give you a word or a phrase from the text. 
And then as you get this word or this phrase, you meditate on that text. You ruminate on it. You hold it before God. Um, Eugene Peterson wrote a book called Eat This Book, and he, he likens this to a dog slobbering over a bone, which is like kind of gross but kind of awesome too, you know? Um, so this, this meditation is just really ruminating on this word or phrase. Like, Lord, this is beautiful. I hold this up before you. I love this expression. This expression really grabbed me. Show me why it grabbed me. Um, and just, you just really hold that phrase before God. And, and do that as long as you can, really. And again, set a timer if you need to. Um, two minutes, five minutes, whatever it takes. Whatever you think is appropriate for that, for that time. Um, then, uh, the, then the third stage is oratio, prayer. Uh, so again, you're going, to, you're going to read the text a third time. And in this third reading, you're going to ask God, you're going to invite God into the space and say, Lord, what do you want to say to me through this text? And then listen for what God is, is attempting to say to you through that word or phrase, okay? What is, that, what is God trying to, to give you? What kind of, what kind of uh, communication or what kind of message is God trying to give you in that, that word or phrase that was spoken to you? And then once you get a sense of that, again, this might, you might have to do this a couple times. Maybe, maybe it's more than once. But as you get a sense of that, then you pray those words back to God. And you hold that, you hold that thought before God. You hold that prayer before God. Uh, and then lastly, uh, is, there's contemplatio, contemplation. And, then, and, and, and this is an this is optional fourth reading. But if you do the fourth reading, what you're really asking for is that you'd be able to respond to God in the ways that he's spoken. So the invitation is, Lord, what do you want me to do on the basis of this, that you've, this, this message that you've given me in this text? Now, Lectio Divina works in tandem with other kinds of scriptural reading, right? So the, the, broad, the more broadly you've read in the text of Scripture, the more Scripture you know, the more effective Lectio Divina is, okay? Because what God will do is bring to mind themes, images, words from other places in the Scriptures, and he'll make connections for you in the text, okay? So this is, what, what this, number one, presupposes is a very vibrant and active um, relationship with God, and a, a strong, a stern commitment to God's activity in the world, right? Like, you cannot have a disenchanted cosmos and practice Lectio Divina, because you actually have to have the expectation that God is going to show up and talk to you, okay? So this is something that requires a little bit of getting used to, especially if this isn't how you've read the Bible in the past. So, I mean, I would highly commend you, like, try it out for a couple of weeks. Like, actually, you know, take it on as a, as a discipline. And there's ways to do this that are more effective than others. So you could pick a particular season of the church, like, you know, um, you know, ordinary times coming up. So I don't, I'm trying, like the last like two weeks of Easter tide, I'm going to, I'm going to practice this, uh, this Lectio Divina, um, something like that. All right. Uh, we were going to, we were going to try it out tonight, but, um, but I, I want to get through the Jesus prayer. Huh? Yeah. Um, the community of St. Barnabas practices Lectio Divina regularly, um, no, it's not, it's not as helpful to do it that way. Um, although... She was saying it is helpful. Oh, you were saying it is helpful. Yeah, like I find a weekly group doing this together reinforces... Okay. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Um, I, I'm with you. Lectio, I like Lectio in groups a lot. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's certainly... Yeah. We just... We're out of time. time. Yeah. <laughs> like we do. Yes. Absolutely. I, any group is welcome at any time to add in Lectio Divina. Like, that would be awesome. I would love that. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, um, 
there's not a, you don't have to ask permission. Like, this is a, this is a wonderful, like, you know, long attested practice of the church. Again, it has its roots in scripture itself. So, you know, I would highly recommend take this on as a group for sure. Uh, also, you know, if you want to, um, if you want to know more about Community of St. Barnabas, Tish and I have done it this year. It's been a really valuable experience for us. And I, I think it's, it's a helpful thing to pass through, like, at least, you know, one year in, the, in, in your time here at Ascension. Um, you know, the, the group has a high commitment level. You have to commit for a year. Uh, and you commit to kind of live by this rule for a year. And you commit to, be, to, to engage in the practices that this community will teach you for that year. But, you know, to do that for a year is a really helpful thing. I mean, the, you, you learn a lot of these practices. You practice together as a group. Uh, and you, you take on the practice of creating your own rule based upon the communal rule of St. Barnabas. Uh, and you, you learn a lot during that process. So let, let me know if you want to talk further about that, and I can, I can always introduce you to the Martzals if you don't know them. Or if you know the Martzals, you can just talk to them. Um, okay, fourth thing uh, in the last 15 minutes here, uh, the Jesus Prayer. Okay, um, who knows the Jesus Prayer? Who's practiced it before? Well, it's cer- certainly uh, the, the, the f- exact phrasing of it is not um, the concern. What it expresses and the practice itself is the, the main thing. Yes. Yeah. A sinner. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, yes, so this is a, uh, again, very long attested practice in the history of the church. Uh, we can go all the way back to certain of the fathers who have versions of this kind of prayer. Um, and so essentially what the Jesus prayer is, is a short, uh, it's a short sentence um, that is voiced in prayer. Gene uh, um, uttered what is the traditional form, which is, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, or Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Uh, and the idea is, is simply to repeat this phrase and uh, not to engage the phrase with your intellect, but to engage it with your body and your heart. And the idea is actually to push yourself outside of your intellect. Like this is a challenge for people like me. Like I'm really heady and really cognitive. So the, the goal of this prayer is actually to get out of your head, like to just entirely like remove yourself from the process of conscious um, reflection or rumination on this prayer, but to let the prayer drive you into your heart. Uh, Russian Orthodox uh, priest named Theophan the Recluse who lived in the 19th century, said the principal thing in the life of prayer is to stand before God with the intellect driven into the heart and to go on standing before him unceasingly day and night until the end of life, right? To drive your intellect into your heart. Get out of your head, into your heart, so that God may command your affections. That's the whole point of this prayer. Um, I find this prayer to be helpful at very specific points in life. And it's like, I find myself doing this practice only at those points. If I'm really angry or I'm really anxious, it's got to be something, it's got to be something so intense that it drives me out of my mind. Like I, I can't think straight. And so I've got to center. I've got to get back into a frame where I can trust God. And so this practice actually drives us into, uh, it drives us out of our minds. It drives us out of our, um, our, our, automatic meditations, right, and drives us into our hearts and, and causes us to reframe things um, by simply uh, using our bodies to pray. Um, so uh, Gary Hansen puts it this way. He says, we use the Jesus prayer to remain before God, breath by breath, aiming our gaze toward God. 
So uh, the idea is to, is, to, is to repeat this prayer over and over again. And we can use our breath to regulate the pace and accentuate the embodiment of the prayer. So when you breathe in, you can say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God. And as you breathe out, have mercy on me, a sinner. So allow that, the rhythm of, of breathing in and breathing out to, to control the pace of the prayer uh, and to control actually the, the, um, the visceral embodied emotional re- response that you're having at that moment. So again, I find this very helpful in those times when, I'm, I'm, when my body is sort of getting the best of me. It's, it's, it's commanding what, I, what my automatic reflections are and what, what my emotional temper is. Well, and where, and where the prayer ultimately has its origin is in, the, in a reflection upon Paul's admonition in 1 Thessalonians, that we would pray without ceasing, right? Um, how do we pray without ceasing? You know, how, if, if we turn our attention away from active prayer, do we cease praying? Well, you know, a life lived with the Jesus prayer in the heart is actually one that, it, that could actually be a life with, uh, where, that's lived in prayer without ceasing. Um, so there's, yeah. With the Jesus prayer? Yeah. No, not for me. Okay. For me, it was like I was desperate and I, I couldn't pray any other way. I think that's why. Yeah. 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 But I have more practice, whereas I've had daily practice. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to find the time to do it. Yeah. And this is something that I think That's right. When my dad got sick, it was incredibly helpful. Yeah. In the Orthodox tradition, there's a prayer rope. Yeah. Yeah. The the chaki. Yeah. Yeah. So so uh uh so let me let me just get to that point. Yeah. I'm about to talk about that that particular point. So give me one second. Um, there's actually four good ways to try to try this prayer out. Um, number one is to pick a number of times to say it each day. And when that becomes easy, increase the number, okay? And uh, the Orthodox, as you were mentioning, use a, a prayer, or they either use prayer beads or they use a specific bracelet that has prayer knots tied into it. There's usually 33, um, and there's one for each year of the Lord's life, and it enables you to kind of count as you're doing the prayer. So if you're like, I'm going to do 500 prayers, I'm going to do 500 breath prayers or 500 Jesus prayers, uh, and you can just kind of count them on the knots. I have a, I have a beaded uh, bracelet. I don't have one of the shot keys. Is that, is that what that is? Yeah. 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 So um, you can get one of those, and that would be a helpful way to um, to entry entry point into the into the Jesus prayer. Um, a second way you can do it is you can pray you can pray it for a fixed amount of time. In other words, you can set a timer and just and just do as many Jesus prayers as happen within that within that time frame. Um, and then as you're if you set a timer, you actually won't worry about, have I been doing this long enough, or how much longer do I have? And you stop looking at the clock, you wait for the timer to go off, right? So you just focus on the breath prayer. Um, 
A third way is to, uh, Gary Hansen talks about this, this would not work for me at all, but it might work for you. Leave notes to yourself reminding yourself to pray. I always be like, oh, there's something blocking the mirror. <laughs> but, you know, you might be like, the refrigerator, oh, it has, it, pray the Jesus prayer, and then you would do it. Uh, or put it on your bedside table, or put it on your, your work desk, and then every time you see it, remind yourself to pray the Jesus prayer for, um, for some period of time. Uh, and then lastly, um, some people find it helpful to pray it when their bodies are busy already. So if you're exercising, like that's a good time to do it. Um, or, uh, or if you're driving, I've done that before, and that's really helpful. Like to be like, you know what, I've been listening to the radio too long, and this is not the input that I want. This is not shaping me in a way that I want to be shaped. Turn the radio off, do the Jesus prayer while I'm in traffic. Uh, and that's really good. Um, or when you're making dinner, that's another possibility. If you're sitting there cooking, Jesus prayer. Instead of putting on music, but just actually say the Jesus prayer. And so this, this kind of intentional taking on of a practice of doing the Jesus prayer at these various points can become formative over a period of time. As Jean says, it finds that you find it kind of lodged in your heart and you kind of find yourself praying it unintentionally almost. Um, okay, so, and you can also pray it lastly as an intercession. Tish, kind of, you kind of alluded to this, uh, but just to make it clear, like when her dad was in the hospital, um, when he was having quadruple bypass surgery and an aorta replacement, um, she found herself praying this prayer as an intercession. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on my dad. You know, uh, and she would pray that over and over again, and it became an intercession. If she like that, she found herself paralyzed. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking for you, but she found herself paralyzed. I'm just quoting her essay. Found herself paralyzed, couldn't pray like you know free prayer for her dad that wasn't just kind of like anxious you know uh, repetition of words. But she, she basically was able to pray this prayer and, and, um, and focus her energies and attention towards her dad through the prayer. And that was a beautiful way for her to intercede would, for him. And I would, just, I would switch. Yeah. I would say, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on dad, a sinner. Yeah. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Mm-hmm. I would go back yeah. and switch. Um, All right. But Okay, so the last practice uh, I want to talk about tonight is sacramental confession. Um, so auricular confession, uh, which is you know a confession that's spoken out loud, uh, is um, is something with a, a really lengthy history in the church. It goes all the way back as far as we know um, to the earliest foundations of the church. Uh, but it takes on certain dimensions in Roman Catholic practice that are very different than Orthodox or Anglican practices. So. I want to, and, or Lutheran practices of, of confession. So I want to distinguish what I'm talking about right now really carefully from Roman Catholic practices of sacramental confession. According to Roman Catholic dogma, if you are in mortal sin and you do not confess that mortal sin, you will go to hell if you die. That is Roman Catholic teaching. Um, so you don't necessarily want to be there. <laughs> and now, and now th- most... Uh, <laughs> most, most Roman Catholics today do not believe that. That's not, that's not what Roman Catholics believe. But it is essentially on the books as the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. What I'm talking about right now is something very, very different than that. Um, this, is, this is a practice that is rooted in, Ang- in the Anglican tradition in spiritual direction rather than, uh, rather than a kind of juridical norm, right? So it's not like you have to, you have to repent of mortal sins and confess it before, before God will forgive you. Like, God has already forgiven you in Jesus Christ. Like, your baptism and your faith in Jesus, those are the bases of your forgiveness. Like, your reception of the forgiveness that's been extended to you. Um, so you don't need to confess to a priest in order to be absolved. Like, that's not, 
That's not, what you, that's not why you confess. You confess in order to get it out of you, right? You, can, you confess in order to make progress in your spiritual life. There's a sin that's besetting you. You bring it to a priest in order to have counsel about that sin. So um, all the way back to the 1549 Book of Common Prayer, the preface to the service of Holy Communion, and the, the text of the 1549 says, the, the preface to Holy Communion, commonly called the Mass, it says, And if there be any of you whose conscience is troubled and grieved in anything, lacking comfort or counsel, let him come to me or some other discreet and learned priest taught in the law of God and confess and open his sin and grief secretly, that he may receive such ghostly counsel, advice, and comfort, that his conscience may be relieved, and that of us, as of the ministers of God and of the church, he may receive comfort and absolution to the satisfaction of his mind and avoiding of all scruple and doubtfulness. You see, very clearly, the way that confession is couched all the way from the foundations of the Book of Common Prayer in 1549, and this is all repeated in 1662 and all of that, is it is, is, it is rooted in this, this, uh, this desire to progress in the faith and to move past the sins that keep you, um, keep you down, essentially, right? To, to move past them. So it's a, it's a pastoral rather than a judicial understanding and mode of sacramental confession, okay? So that's what, that's what the rite is about. So if you look at the rite, uh, I actually uh, printed it out for you and gave it to you. Um, this is the ACNA rite, Reconciliation of Penitence. Uh, and it begins with the penitent saying, Bless me for I have sinned. And the priest says, The Lord be in your heart and upon your lips so you can, can truly confess your sins. Um, so we ask for aid uh, and illumination of the Holy Spirit to confess sins. Uh, and then the, the penitent will then confess particular sins that, uh, that come to mind and, and uh, that, are on, that are on one's heart. And then notice the rubric, which is the, the text that's printed in italics. Here the priest may offer counsel, direction, and comfort. Right. So, so that thing that was voiced there in the 1549 Book of Common Prayer uh, finds its expression in the actual rite itself. Okay. And then, the, and then it, on behalf of the church, not on, on behalf of God, on behalf of the church, the priest proclaims that in Christ your sins are forgiven. Okay? So this is what the sacramental rite of confession is about. It's about spiritual direction. So there's a time usually where before you actually confess particular sins, and the way I do it is I actually have the conversation before we begin the rite. Uh, and I, I ask you to talk about, okay, what, do you, what are we going to talk about today? Um, so the hope is that you've done some examination of conscience before you come in, right? And that even means, like, you've jotted down some notes. Like, what are the areas that I, I want to talk about? Um, so you, you, jot down the, you jot down the areas that you want to talk about. Then we have a conversation about it. And then, uh, and then we'll go through the right. I mean, I, I, might, I might give counsel. Like, maybe, maybe there's some practice you need to take on. Maybe there's a practice of meditation that you'll want to take on in order to, um, to address this particular pattern or sin in your life. Or some, you know, uh, some... Uh, boundary that you need to impose in your life, right? So if, you're, if you've got a problem with social media that you need to confess or distraction, uh, then we might talk about what would it look like to put limits on social media? What kinds of, what kinds of barriers can you set up to being on Facebook or, or Twitter or whatever it is? Um, things like that. Um, so there's a, there's a kind of, there's a, there's a time where we talk about um, the, the patterns of sin in your life. We do some, some, some searching spiritual direction. Then we do the right itself. Um, and Richard Hooker, who is one of the most important Anglican theologians, says this about it, about the rite. He says, The rite is designed to ease the penitent of all scrupulosities, leave them settled in peace and satisfied, touching the mercy of God towards them. Touching the mercy of God towards them, right? So there's a sense of, you know, 
like receiving the forgiveness proclaimed over you that you already have in your baptism and in faith in Jesus Christ. So, um, yeah, so, so the, the, the Anglican Church recommends doing this once a year at a minimum, uh, right around, right before Easter as a kind of preparative towards, t- towards Easter um, to, to bring all of the sins that have uh, kind of kept you down over the course of that last year um, in a focused way before God in the presence of one of his ministers and before the church and to receive that absolution and receive spiritual direction around, around those sins. Um, you know, the people that, I, people that I see for spiritual direction, I ask them to do it more regularly than that, actually, because I think there's progress to be made through a regular repetition of this rite. So that's all we've got for tonight, okay? Uh, five practices. Uh, there's a lot more we could go into, a lot more we could do, but um, we're going to stop there for this evening because we're out of time. And um, unfortunately, we didn't get a chance to do Lectio Divina. I would have liked to have done that exercise with you, but um, if you want to know more about it or you want to practice it, um, we can always do that together. So. Yeah, it's by uh, James Wilhoyt, W-I-L-H-O. IT and Evan Evan Howard and is called Discovering Lectio Divina, I think. Yeah. So I also wanted to say I was hoping we could maybe do QA, but we ran out of time. If you have questions, feel free to ask. And if people want that audit that I mentioned, the liturgy audit, um, let Jonathan know and we can just send it to you. Truth. Thank you.